Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. On today's show, Overland editor and our first Backstory regular guest, co-editor Evelyn Araluen, joins me to deep dive into the latest edition of Overland that is coming up later in the hour, but soon. Imagine if Elizabeth MacArthur, wife wife of opportunistic bully and infamous wool baron John MacArthur, had written a tell-all memoir in the years after her husband's death, revealing her cunning, her quest for survival, heartache, loss and the dark truths about her narcissistic husband and colonial myth-making. Kate Grenville's new novel, A Room Made of Leaves, invites us to question the nature of historical truths. Who writes them, whom they serve, and what voices we've never heard would tell us. Kate Grenville, author of an impressively long list of books, winner of the Orange Prize and Commonwealth Writers Prize, among many others, joins me soon to talk about her new book and the life that inspired it. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. He was barely cold in his grave when they began lauding him as a hero, even the ones who loathed him in life. Surely it must be one of the choicest revenges of outliving an enemy to look pious at his name. Turn up your eyes, put your hands together like a parson and mouth all the false words. Imagine if Elizabeth MacArthur, wife of opportunistic bully and infamous wool baron John MacArthur, had written a tell-all memoir in the years after her husband's death, revealing her cunning, her quest for survival, her heartache, loss and dark truths about both her husband and colonial myth-making. Kate Grenville's new novel, A Room Made of Leaves, invites us to question the nature of historical truths, who writes them, whom they serve, and what the voices we've never heard would actually tell us if they could. Kate Grenville, author of an impressively long list of books, winner of the Orange Prize and Commonwealth Writers' Prize, among others, joins me on the line now. Kate, welcome to Backstory. Thank you. Lovely to be with you. Now, uh, this was uh, quite a pleasure of a book to read because you've you've really done that that great act of of writer, writerly alchemy. You've managed to spin absolute gold out of you know this these kind of um, I, I guess the the fragments that you have found of someone's words you've you've read between the lines and you've created something that that really feels quite real can you talk about where this journey started for you yeah look i i started finding out about elizabeth macarthur about 20 years ago uh when i was researching another book the secret river and i came across elizabeth macarthur's letters and like most of the letters of those women of the past the 18th and 19th century Frankly, they're pretty dull. But I also knew that her life was anything but dull because, for one thing, she was married to a a kind of monstrous 
ruthless bully of a man, John MacArthur, who became one of the richest and most powerful men in Sydney by kind of graft and, and bullying. Um, and her life was was full of tumultuous things happening. So I thought there's a gap here between the record she left, which is these terribly bland letters, uh, and the reality of her life. And, of course, a gap is just what a novelist likes. I thought, aha, there is a story here, and one of these days I'll get around to writing it, and then I finally have. Yeah, you, you, you write about this, actually. I think I found a piece that you wrote that I think is published on the text publishing website where you discuss just some of the literary sleuthing that you do because you really are reading into the lines and between the lines of, of you know, of her own writing, her own letters. You're finding, you know, I guess, where her you know, her kind of real thoughts perhaps are pushing through the kind of conventions of the time. And you even make suggestions in your own interpretation of that about why it might be that she wrote so blandly that, in fact, uh, she presumed that none of her letters would, in fact, be private. It's a really interesting construction. Do you you feel as though there is veracity to it um, as well as the kind of right of uh, the act of sort of writerly imagination? Well, it is very much, it's a novel. I wouldn't claim uh, a word like veracity for it. Um, but on the other hand, it was inspired and informed by the historical record. Now, the historical record about Elizabeth MacArthur is pretty sketchy, uh, as it was for nearly all women of the past. We know a huge amount about John MacArthur, very little about Elizabeth. The only real documents we have are those letters that she left. So um, it seemed to me that, you know, to get in there and somehow tell her story was quite important because they are our foremothers, you know. Men have a whole a whole long stream of, you know, statues on, on pedestals and writings and sorts of things that give male culture a great solidity of background reaching back into the centuries. All we women have are some rather bland little things and those terribly stiff photographs of them all trussed up in their corsets and long dresses. So my idea with the book was to think, okay, let's just be outrageous. This is, after all, a novel, and I'm a novelist. Let's pretend that Elizabeth MacArthur wrote some secret memoirs in which she actually for the first time ever, actually said what she really thought about all that, (laughs) told the real story, and that I somehow, by some miracle, found these long-lost secret memoirs and just published them. So that's the joke that frames the book, and the memoirs, of course, are the, are the, are the main text of the book. You take you, you really revel in this aspect of it, though. It is very much a feature of the book that you're referencing the original uh, documents that you, in fact, uh, based it on or were inspired by. And you're sort of giving the reader all these clues about how you've constructed the narrative. You talk about, you know, how she has... Um, you know, try to be restrained in describing things in this very bland way because, you know, she wanted to uh, to make sure that her husband didn't get angry about something she'd said. Um, but she leaves clues here and there to try and, and give the, the reader at the other end a sense of, of what she was really saying. So you can sort of see how you've built a narrative out of those things. Uh, it's a wonderful experience because quite often uh, you get the finished product but you don't get this sort of... Um, I, I guess, concurrent exposure of how you've actually created it. 
Yeah, and one of the reasons I did that is that my real theme in the book, I mean, Elizabeth MacArthur is a fascinating character, and my Elizabeth MacArthur, I think, is, is, is pretty interesting. But my real theme in the book was the idea of stories and how much we should trust them, which I think is a very contemporary idea. You know, we're surrounded by stories and information, and it all comes to us in the same kind of package. We have to think quite hard, for example, when we go online, about what to believe and what not to believe. Our politicians, the people who try to sell us things, they're all giving us spin. So for most of the many years that I was writing this book, it was actually called Do Not Believe Too Quickly. And that's what I would actually like. So the, the book kind of works on both levels. One is about Elizabeth MacArthur, but the other is this thing of think about stories, including the one I'm telling you, and think about a couple of important questions. One is, who is telling this story? And the second one is, are they telling the truth? So that's, you know, that's, I think, a story for today. Absolutely. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and I'm talking to author Kate Granville about her latest novel, A Room Made of Leaves. Do you mind, for the listener, for those who don't, who aren't aware of, of this character, to, to outline a little bit of the, the story that you tell about Elizabeth MacArthur? Yes. Um, basically, it follows the historical record, the, the, the sort of bare bones of the events. She was born a farmer's daughter in Devon in England in the late 18th century. So she, she was not a lady. When I've talked about this book to people, I say, I'm writing about Mrs. MacArthur. They say, oh, Lady MacArthur, which kind of betrays that terrible Australian snobbery. We all want to find a duke in the family story. Anyway, so she was, she was born into this fairly modest uh, probably a sheep farming uh, family in Devon. Uh, but she lived for a long time with the local clergyman, which is where she learnt to read and write so well. Then she married John MacArthur. Uh, there's a big question mark in my mind about why you would ever have married the man. One answer is provided by the fact that she was four months pregnant when she married him. So he was, he was also from a very humble background. His father w- was a draper. So there was, wasn't any money or status there. This is no... He was no Mr. Darcy. Let's, <laughs> let's be very frank about that. He very adamantly then, was not Mr. Darcy. Kind of, More like Wickham, if Mr. anything. Yeah, if there's an opposite to Mr. Darcy, John MacArthur was it. Um, but um, going to Australia as a soldier gave him the opportunity that would never have been given to him in Europe uh, for promotion and a bit more money. So that's why they ended up in 1790 in Sydney. John MacArthur then proceeded to bully, coax, cajole, manipulate everybody around him so that by ten, in another 10 years' time, he was by far the richest, most powerful man in the place, owned a great spread of land. Um, and at some point in there, they started to breed merino sheep. Now, John MacArthur used to be called the father of the Australian wool industry. That's actually not true. He kept getting into strife, for example, having a duel with his commanding officer, and each time he was sent to England to sort of defend himself in court. And while he was doing that, it was his wife that was not just looking after the sheep, but actually breeding them. So, you know, if there's anybody to thank for the merino, it should be the mother of the wool industry, Elizabeth MacArthur. Mm-hmm. So to run that, must have, she must have been an amazing woman because the, it was the equivalent of running a giant company today with no experience or education to do that. So she must have been a pretty amazing woman. You get the real feeling as well that, um, that you know, the MacArthur of this book is very much a Trumpian 
character that actually, you know, the way it's been constructed without Elizabeth, there's, you know, there's little likelihood that he would have survived long enough to have achieved any of those things. He probably would have ended up on the wrong end of a duel from <laughs> from some of the, the, the ways in which um, he behaves. It's a really interesting thought here. Did you, were you thinking about any kind of modern character while creating your MacArthur? Well, you know, it's a spooky thing when you write a book. Sometimes reality seems to actually be imitating what you've just written. So, you know, I have been writing this book for quite a long time. So when Trump kind of loomed on the horizon, I thought, wow, have I brought this man into existence by writing a sort of 18th and 19th century equivalent of him? Uh, I, I think it just means that these people have always been around and they always will be around. And the rest of us have to really be on our guard uh, to uh, to deal with them. Yeah, I really want to dive a bit more into uh, the idea of voices that aren't heard because we, we've talked about that and that very much is the underpinning of, you know, why you've kind of, you've embarked on, on creating this book. You say um, in your, your short essay on this topic... Um, like most historical fiction, it starts in the same place as history does, in the record of past left to us in documents, oral traditions, buildings, landscapes and objects. Uh, historians devise one kind of story from these sources. Fiction writers devise another kind. Those sources are flawed, partial and, and ambiguous. For that reason, the stories that come out of them, although starting in the same place, can end up very differently. But what historians of writers of historical fiction have in common is an urge to understand that past, what is meant then, and perhaps more importantly, what it means now for us living in the world that has been shaped by that past. So I really do think about um, about this in terms of when we're recording the past or when we're looking at the past and there are voices omitted, what future are we creating based on a faulty view of the past? Um, do you feel like fiction really serves that purpose of rectifying that lack? Look, it certainly fills the gap. Whether it's, I think you wouldn't call it, I wouldn't call it rectifying because in many cases we will never know the truth. Um, this book is dedicated to all those who've sto- whose stories have been silenced. And, of course, um, in the Australian context, uh, as well as women whose stories were silenced because of the social strictures around them, in the Australian context, the big stories that up till recently haven't really been told are the ones of the Indigenous people from their point of view. And the reason for that is that the written record, by and large, is what the British left. Now, it seems to me we need to not believe too quickly uh, when we read those accounts by the British. They had their own agenda, basically. They wanted to prove that what they were doing was okay morally. Um, So in the book, I have taken... You know, Elizabeth MacArthur and John went out to Parramatta outside Sydney and, and as as the euphemism goes, took up land, that is, took land, from the local people there, the Baramatical. Now, that story is one I've kind of already touched on in The Secret River, but in this one I had an opportunity to come at it differently. Not exactly what happened, the fact that, you know, a country was stolen, but what were the stories told about it? What stories did the white people tell to make it okay? And might we somehow glimpse between the lines of what the white people said? Might we begin imaginatively to glimpse what it must have actually been like? Absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and also obviously there are people for whom, you know, these stories have been handed down that that can be recorded in in other ways um, that that now we're starting to truly get a more widespread understanding of. I think another thing that's quite interesting is when we're talking about great historical truths, a lot of what, you know, is given to be understood as Australia's history is in fact myth-making. I think you've just, you touched perhaps on, um, you know, some of the the lies of how we look at... um, colonialism at ownership of land versus theft of land all of these things are about not just spin but literal you know you know whitewashing of history or even mistelling of history how much of what we think of as history is in fact fiction ah well uh you would get me into dangerous territory there uh, look, historians, as I said in that piece that you quoted, um, the record that the past has left, which historians build on, is partial. You know, uh, uh, for a start, the written record, people only wrote down things that they thought they were going to be safe to write down. Um, a lot of documents got destroyed. Um, the things that survive are a very biased um, sample of what went on in the past, and historians... That's all they can go on, that and their extremely expert contextualising of those things. Um, writers of fiction can, can use those same sources but make a slightly different story of it. I think the, um, the great, one of the great things that's happening these days is that um, all those sto- more different kinds of stories are being respected. So, for example, oral history used to be poo-pooed by, you know, conventional historians years ago as being worthless and kind of unverifiable. One of the fabulous things that's happened now is that oral oral traditions, such as those retained for many generations by um, Indigenous people, uh, they are now being respected and recognised as a very valid way of getting into what the past actually meant. So, you know, we have, there's a long way to go, but we have also come a long way. I'm going to say, I, I did say this in a, a previous interview with someone else who has, has done an imaginative historical work um, that, you know, really actually uh, for perhaps the first time for many Australians, history is actually interesting. <laughs> you, you, you really, you're not getting this kind of one-eyed um, very thin view of what supposedly this place was and, and what happened here. Um, the richness of what happens when you get more voices is is just undeniable. Is there was there that attraction for you? Because you certainly have have now um, become somewhat of a, a veteran of writing this type of historical fiction, and, and with that richness, is that what drew you to this type of writing? Look, my real interest is always in the present and the puzzles and dilemmas and kind of unsolvable things in the present. But it seems to me, you know, the present has been created by the past. So that's a really good reason to go back and look at the past and think, well, they're the choices we made in the past and that's why we are now here. So that informs decisions you might make about the, about the present in all kinds of ways. Um, and the other thing, of course, is that silencing of those histories. I, I seem to have a um, almost evangelical zeal to write, to write into the silences, to tell those stories that haven't been told, or at least to tell a version of them. 
Um, and I always hope that me telling my particular imaginative engagement with those stories of the past will actually uh, will be part of a bigger conversation where other people will think, oh, okay, yes, uh, the history says this, Kate Grenville says this, but actually there's another possible way of looking at it too. Mm. So, you know, it's like we need to broaden the thing. Interesting what you say about Australian history being boring. I have a feeling, you know, when I wrote The Secret River, there was this tsunami of mail from readers. And basically what they were saying to me was that. They said, look, we've always been taught this rather bland and self-congratulatory version of Australian history. But a lot of them said, we kind of knew it wasn't true. And now you're helping us point to another story. And of course, I could not have done that without the work of historians. You know, they have, over the last 20, 30 years, made it possible for novelists like me to actually get in there and uh, tell, those, tell those imaginative, uh, tell, the, tell stories that are based on the imagination. Uh, I, I do want to leave on, on the note of the, the craft of writing once more because this is a show about craft. And I get the feeling, uh, Kate, that by now you're quite the expert on the apostolic arts. You must have read so many old letters um, that I, I kind of almost feel as though you're, you know, mentally annotating when you read these things. Do you think at any stage this might be something that you would you would want to set out for a reader to show the work that goes on behind the scenes uh, to kind of create a, um, a fictional work or to find these kind of little clues uh, to annotate a letter that's been written, for example, by someone to find out what they might really be saying? Ah, oh, that's so interesting. Look, when I wrote The Secret River, because I have to start with a confession, which is that I don't much like reading historical fiction because I always kind of want to know where the fiction starts and the history ends. So when I wrote The Secret River, uh, I wrote a, a, a companion book to it, which is called Searching for the Secret River, and that actually tells the story of me going into the research, into the archive, and what I found there... And the process of turning that into fiction, the choices I made, basically. That idea of annotating a letter is terrific. I have thought about, and maybe I will, put some of Elizabeth MacArthur's letters up on my website um, and perhaps do something like that there. Thank you for the suggestion. (laughs) Well, I personally would love to read it, so that's just wonderful. I'm very glad you're going to do that. Well, Kate Grenville, I would love to talk to you for much longer. Um, You have um, such a wealth of knowledge and experience in um, in terms of just writing, but also this kind of really exacting craft of of creating historical fiction based on such research. So thank you so much for joining me on the line today. It's been really good to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. That was uh, Kate Grenville, whose book uh, A Room Made of Leaves is out now through text publishing. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. In Mental Ears and Poetic Work, J.H. Frin writes that no poet has or can have clean hands because clean hands are themselves a contradiction. Clean hands do not 
do no worthwhile work. Resistance is the tenor of reality and action in it is compromised, bloody handed in the world and of it. So begins the editorial of the latest edition of Overland, an incredibly fitting launching place for a journal that goes on to offer deep critical discourse that has every relevance to the struggles of our modern times. Joining me now is co-editor of this edition, Evelyn Aralowin, editor... uh, like Evelyn, sorry. <laughs> Welcome to Backstory. Um, I'm just so excited to have you today that I'm jumping all over the place. You are uh, officially the first uh, regular guest we're going to be having on Backstory. So I'm hoping we get to hear your wonderful voice um, quite often on these airwaves. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me and for your lovely introduction. I'm I'm so glad that, you know, we can finally talk about the edition now that it's actually here. <laughs> yes, we did have a brief introduction uh, to you and your co-editor, uh, Jonathan Dunk, um, talking about uh, what it was like to work together as both partners in life and in work. Um, But now we actually have the edition and I have in my hands this wonderful little perfect bound but incredibly weighty edition uh, to talk about. I have so many questions, um, but firstly, how are you feeling about um, about this edition given that it actually seems to have enormous relevance for what's happening right now? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, the goalposts constantly shifted while we were working on this. You know, we started up this work as, you know, the bushfires were raging all through the country. And then obviously, you know, the dialogue shifted quite extensively when coronavirus began to, um, you know, began to manifest globally and we all sort of entered into this lockdown stage. And now we've had kind of additionally, we've had this sort of global recognition and response to Black Lives Matter. And it just, this is a really a very intense and complex year politically. And we were, you know, we were really hoping to be able to stage some dialogue around what radical politics might mean, the radical imagination might mean and why it's so necessary at such a time. And with every single month, you know, things just are getting more and more severe in so many of the issues that were referenced in in the in the journal as, as it was initially kind of being developed through the year. So it's just it's just funny, you know. It's like a bit of a self fulfilling prophecy when you give yourself this kind of topic. Well, I mean, I think uh, I'd like to think that perhaps it's because uh, these ideas have been percolating up and, um, you know, now we're we're finally seeing it break through to the kind of, you know, I guess mainstream cultural discourse. But thinkers have long considered these things mm. as, you know, there's, there's one, um, there are so many things I'd like to talk about in this edition, <laughs> but one that sort of really sets off from, from page three was a... Um, a piece of criticism on the works of Sean Boney, um, or Bonnie rather, um, which uh, who is a radical poet who really, although, you know, I felt like this was something that very much spoke to not just the modern context but the local context and yet this mm. author was writing, um, died in, in 2019. Can you talk a little bit about that piece of criticism by Toby Fitch? 
Yeah, that was a really, it was one, actually the first piece that was, um, that we sort of slated for this issue. And, you know, when we were just beginning the job, um, Sean Bonney passed away in November as we were preparing to, to start this role. And he's one of those incredible poets who writes the kind of work that everyone wishes they could write, but also that I think really just shatters all of the preconceptions that we might have about what poetry can do, what the creative imaginary can do in this space. And, you know, that that J.H. Prynne quote that you read from the editorial about clean hands doing no worthwhile work, I think Bonnie really epitomises that. And we just, we thought, you know, this is, this is one of those things that we, we would like to recognise and we tossed around the idea of an obituary or some kind of in memoriam, but Toby, you know, Toby Fitch, who's our poet, regular poetry editor, um, who was an enormous fan of Bonnie, approached the family and said, listen, can we please republish some of his work? It's so important now more than ever. And, um, you know, wrote a really beautiful framing, I think, that, mm-hmm. that just sometimes I think when we're talking about somebody who's gifted us so much creative work, an obituary doesn't really suffice. And so getting entangled in the beauty of his work and also, you know, the the very gritty, realistic um, political portrayals that he's, he's offering us here, um, it really just came across as the sort of necessary framing for what we wanted to be doing in our role. You know, Jonathan and I are both poets and we came into this position as editors, you know, with that always having a really special place in our work. Poetry has always been really central to our scholarship, to our craft, to our communities. And, it's, you know, it's just, again, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Everyone's been sort of quoting and re-quoting this this poem of Bonnie's that that um, Toby Fitch quotes in his in his essay, uh, for I love you, say fuck the police, for the fires of heaven, say fuck the yes. police, don't say recruitment, don't say Trotsky, say fuck the police. And that, again, you know, that's just become, that's just become a bit of a rallying cry right now with the Black Lives Matter movement. So I guess exactly what you're saying, you know, these issues have all been percolating and this, in 2020, things that we were encouraging people to think about, you know, with a critical eye or just erupting onto a political stage. Absolutely. And, and I really recommend uh, to read the prose poetry that um, that Bonnie has created here from Deep Darkness. I think I reread that three times. Um, mm. It's just amazing, a really incredible work. Um, I wanted to also talk about Justin Clemens' critique this, which is a, a criticism of radical critique, um, uh, which is, it's, it seems somewhat elliptical and, and you know, and even tautological as Clemens oh, puts yeah. it. Um, but I, I love this piece because I've been trying to come to terms with, with what's happening on Twitter and how that discourse is working and how it's, uh, it's eating itself. And in a way, this uh. piece really is, is about that. It's very literally about that once you get to the conclusion, but it gives you this background of, of what, of, of you know what criticism is and and the nature of radical criticism that I found uh, again it requires I'd say at least two reads to sort of wrap your mind around these these quite sort of um, tail chasing ideas but mm. but I felt it was mm. very appropriate for for the time that we find ourselves in with the reliance on Twitter and and Twitter criticism. Yeah, and also you know I think when we talk when we try to talk broadly about critique, there's this this 
Lines been going around for a while that you can, and I'm actually not 100 percent sure where it came from, but it's this idea that like you can only true critique only arises from like a real love and adoration of something. And I think when you know when you read this essay, I I feel you know, and Justin Clemens is is a great friend of Overland, and he's a really wonderful writer and philosopher and thinker and poet himself. And I think this is a work that demonstrates that, like, there's no there's no rule for critique. There's no broad rule about what it is or what it does or what you have to bring to it in order to perform critique. But he does, I think, you know, stage some really necessary questions right now so that we can actually hold ourselves accountable to the ideas that we might be trying to resist or challenge. And in an age where, like... You know, ideas are just circulated so quickly on Twitter and social media and then they almost kind of disappear. I think actually, like, having a really serious conversation with ourselves about what what we ex- actually expect critique to be able to do and where it came from and are we honouring that history, I think, is really important. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to Overland co-editor Evelyn Araluen about the latest edition, which is truly one that just taps into um, the modern concerns that we're all we're all really deeply thinking about and certainly people who have written for this edition are engaging um, with ideas that I have found so I'd say somewhat cathartic <laughs> to, to, mm. to dip into but, but also giving me a, a frame of reference for things that I perhaps was lacking. Um, there's a piece here uh, which is an excerpt from the film In My Blood It Runs um, and it's a, a piece, um, a kind of monologue from um, mm. Dujan Hussan, um, who is supposed to be a 13-year-old um, in this... He's 13 now. I think he was about oh, 11, 11 or 12 when he wrote this. And when we received it, we were just sort of so stunned, you know. It's so powerful and he's, he's a child. He's a little boy. It's incredible. I just want to read a small, um, a small piece here um, from towards the end of this... Um, you know, and it's a very short excerpt, I should say, just two pages. Um, lots of people have been talking about racism. I didn't know what what that meant, but I do now. It means when a man is so smart and thinks he is, he thinks he's so smart that he can be a man that cruels other people. Someone who thinks he can be whoever he wants and can rip off black people, that's racist. First, we have to go to school, listen to the white people and learn how to do their things. Then once we learn what they do all the time, then we can smash down all the buildings and turn the land back into the rocks that might be going to happen for the future I just thought that's a child writing mm. this incredibly powerful um, piece um, can you talk to me about that like where this this came from yeah um, this is something that you know we received um, you know we received an email from the producers of In My Blood It Runs and it was just sort of at that early stage I think it was just a, a sort of a broad conversation knowing that you know this this documentary was coming out and that so much community time and energy has been poured into this it's it really is you know um, it was such a collaborative endeavor to produce this this really important documentary and um, you know the producers said hey we've we've actually got you know we've got something we've got something that you know that that's one's written here that you might want to read it might be 
I don't know, maybe you'll want to put it online and we can link to the piece. And I, I feel like they, they, you know, they were initially sort of assuming that we would just put this out very quickly, very quick turnaround and build publicity. And it was one of those pieces where we just really, you know, I think we were as floored by it as you were. And there's mm. particular, you know, there's ways, he's just got these these incredible ways of speaking that we really wanted to keep, uh, to keep his voice as distinct as possible. You know, that line that you read, um, you know, uh, many things he is so smart that he can be a man that cruels other people, you know, like that's just, that's just such uh, an incredible way of phrasing, you know, this, this experience of, of racism, institutional and interpersonal that he's gone through. And we, you know, we were really desperate to put this in print. We were like, listen, we know that, you know, you're building momentum for this and we know that the whole team is working on that, but please let us, you know, let us situate this in this conversation. We think it's one of the most important pieces in the issue. Um, I ended up doing the illustration around it. Mm. Um, you know, we, we just, we, we really, you know, this, it was a tough, it was a tough decision about whether we open with Bonnie or we open, you know, we open with this piece, which is called Aboriginal People We're Here First. Um, and, uh, in the end, you know, we just really wanted it to flow into, to flow into all of these realities that he's staging, um, that I think, you know, they really do help frame the rest of the issue. And they also frame the work that we wanted to be doing here to be able to publish new and emerging voices, um, you know, and the voice of a literal child who has just, you know, stunned us all with this and with the documentary, so, you know, we were just so happy that they reached out to us and we hope that it does lead to more people going online and finding screenings um, to watch In My Blood It Runs because um, it's, really, it's really an incredible piece of work. Yeah, look, it's an incredibly arresting piece all on its own, but it looks like uh, I think um, In My Blood It Runs um, may still be available to view on iView. I, I Check it out. Yeah, um, yeah, you can see screening times and such online on their website as well. Absolutely. Um, well, look, uh, we're fast running out of time and I feel like I barely scratched the surface, even though, you know, it's such a deceptively small-looking beast, but there's so much inside this incredible edition. Um, you have, of course, uh, got the um, the Judith Wright Poetry Prize shortlistees and mm. the Sydney Nalima Prize winners and runner-ups in this edition. They are all really excellent. I read each of the, the three um, poems on the shortlist um, at least twice. Um, just really such um, great talent here and also the, the house guest, the winner of the the uh, Nalima Sydney Story Prize. This is um, something that I think people really need to be aware of about Overland is that you do really uh, have, as well as this deep and interesting um, criticism, you always have poetry and short stories as well. It's a very important part of of uh, yeah. this this publication. Yeah, and I think that we are unfortunately fast seeing the decline of opportunities for short creative writing work to be published in journals and in print. You know, there's, we have, you know, we have opened up new opportunities for online only content in our fiction and in our poetry as well. But there is something so powerful about seeing your work on a page. And, you know, we've had a redesign for this issue as well. 
Um, so the entire layout has changed, all our colours have changed. And, you know, when you look, say, when you look through these Judith Wright poems, um, you know, in Dan Hogan's work, Gracie E's work, Lou Garcia Dolnik's work, you know, it's just been laid out so beautifully that it would be a real shame to only ever see these works on a computer screen when they just... You know, they just they just sit so gorgeously on the page. So we're also really happy about that. You know, combining all of these incredible incredible short stories and poems with we think like a really fresh design and visual character to exemplify just how fantastic these pieces are. I did think about this from an accessibility standpoint as well. I think you really wanted to make, um, you know, there's a lot of of very high level concepts that that run throughout the criticism within these pieces that that obviously might require rereading and and processing. Oh yeah, (laughs) many of these I had to read, you know, Oma Wisman's piece. I've read that a million times and I still don't know if I know what it's about, but... um, (laughs) But, you know. I, but the way it's been laid out is really wonderful because the judges' notes sort of are very easy to see uh, are right up uh, against each piece um, as, you know, you can kind of read through the judges' notes and then read through the pieces to see the justification. And I found that a really wonderful introduction. So, for example, I don't feel that knowledgeable about poetry, but I felt as though I really got a sense of why this was considered to be, uh, these were considered to be shortlistees, um, you know, really well laid out in this in this kind of formatting so I found that a really useful um, approach to how you've sort of set the whole um, sections up in this in this edition. Yeah we're hoping to be able to continue that and also to extend that into some of the criticism we know that some of these pieces that we published in terms of the essay we know that some of them are weird we know that they are definitely very challenging um, but we do hope that you know we can bring everyone along in these conversations and that we do have something for everyone but yeah absolutely I mean going forward and also on the website we are really trying to make sure that all of the creative and the critical work goes hand in hand with some kind of frame and some kind of sense of curation that you know that we're here as editors and that we were challenged by this work too but that we believe that it has something to share. Well, look, as much as I would love to talk to you for so much longer about this edition, um, I should probably give people the opportunity to read it and make some some decisions about what they find interesting for themselves. But I am very appreciative, um, Evelyn, of you coming and joining me today. And I I look forward to um, having you and or Jonathan come in regularly to talk about uh, what happens in each edition. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for that, Mel. That was Evelyn Aralowin, who is the co-editor of Overland. And that edition, the autumn edition actually, um, is out now. And it's really something that I think is worth getting in paper form. If you can uh, afford to do so and have access to it, you should be able to find it in most uh, good bookshops um, or visit the Overland website to find out more details that's all we have time for today. I would like to thank my guest, Kate Grenville, author of A Room Made of Leaves and Overland co-editor, Evelyn Aralowin. I will be back with you all again next week, uh, live and, uh, and or streaming or on podcast, however you like to listen, I guess, to Backstory. I will be there. And I'm leaving you with the very best of listening still to come. Up next is the one. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7 Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. 
Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.